0: follow as I read Deuteronomy 14, verse 22 and following. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, When the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind it up in the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year, and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess." If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers shall, should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart, or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him, and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release, is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hands, your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word applies to all manners of life, to things spiritual, to things that seem very earthly regarding money and possessions. And We know that these touch deep matters of our hearts. We pray that you would soften our hearts and help us to listen to what your word has to say to us. We pray your spirit's blessing upon preaching of your word. So I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his 1964 State of the Union address, President Johnson declared a war on poverty. At the time... Uh, uh, There were 19% of Americans lived under the poverty line, which was some standard of what was expected for housing and access to food, clothing, and medical care. And uh, with various initiatives along the lines of education and health care, President Johnson said, our aim is not only to relieve the symptom of poverty, but to cure it, and above all, to prevent it. Fast forward to 2004, In which year, 35.9 million Americans, 12% of our population, lived under the poverty line, including 12.1 million children, and growing at 1 million new uh, uh, members of poverty year by year. Uh, The Cato Institute, a libertarian uh, think tank, has estimated that since the Johnson administration, America has spent $15 trillion on welfare, And yet the rates annually have stayed about the same in terms of the poverty rate. Well, it seems that man's efforts to fix poverty are no better than man's efforts to merit salvation for eternal life. Our text does not offer a cure for material poverty in this life, but it does point to the cure for spiritual poverty, and anticipates the day in which poverty will be eliminated forever. Until then, you and I have a calling to exercise faithful stewardship, to preserve and uphold social justice, to protect the vulnerable from oppression. So tonight I want to lead you on a little tour on biblical economics. As we do so, I encourage you to remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. I want to structure this message in two folds. One is really off of the, the two greatest commandments to love the Lord your God, to love your neighbors yourself. So we're going to first look at the vertical side of these commands before we move into the horizontal. And firstly, we believe that Christ's sacrifice compels us to love God with all of our possessions. Now, it's interesting that the tithe, here, this is one of the unique passages in Scripture where three tithes are introduced. You may not have been aware of that. There was more than one tithe in the Old Testament. There were actually three. There was the tithe of celebration, the tithe for the clergy, and the tithe for the caring for the needy. Now, the tithe literally meant a tenth, a tenth of one's gross increase, yield from the land. And uh, though many people today bristle at the notion of the tithe, uh, we believe from God's word that it's the wisdom of God to provide structure to people's lives for the usage of the resources God has entrusted to us. We are mere stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And so in the command here is anticipating that the people would, would yield produce, crops from the land as uh, farmers and ranchers, that they were to the tithe what the land produced. Now, of course, at this time, Moses is speaking to a people who were living east of the Jordan. They had no land of their own yet. But this command anticipates the possession of the land, which would happen after the conquest. And as the people moved in to conquer uh, God's enemies and began to enjoy the abundance of God's provision— In the promised land. Notice verse twenty-three also anticipates a central meeting place, because at this time the tabernacle was a a mobile uh, place of worship, moving tearing up and tearing down as God's people moved um, throughout the wilderness wanderings. And so God's people longed for rest in the land. They longed for a stationary house of worship. Now, one key to understand the tithe comes in verse 23, where Moses says, before the Lord your God, in emphasizing eating and enjoying and blessing. And it's important to note that the first tithe was not something you gave away. It was what God's people consumed themselves. It was saving up for special occasions, for celebration, for worship. And it was a celebration, not just in your private household, but in the presence of God gathered with God's people. You see, the, uh, as, as you see here in the text, as Moses describes eating the tithe of your grain, your wine, your oil, from the herd or the flock, in order to learn to fear the Lord your God, who graciously provides everything that we enjoy. Now, as we move on in the, the Revelation, we understand that God gave his people a command to gather three times, of, three times a year, uh, to make a pilgrimage to the place of worship, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at Passover. Uh, seven weeks later, the Feast of Weeks, which came to be known as Pentecost. And then lastly, the Feast of Booths, which would take place after the fall harvest later in the year. And it's interesting how God he anticipates some of the practical considerations that for people who had to travel far to the meeting of worship, uh, that they were uh, not forced to carry their grain or, or, or drive their herds and flocks before them, but were allowed to convert uh, their tithe and the currency. So, consider it's like early travelers' checks in order to bring their currency and to purchase what they needed for worship. As became the custom, as uh, the central place of worship was first at Shiloh and then later on in Jerusalem. And of course, anticipating that there would be sellers who would sell goods uh, that people could use for worship. And uh, implicit in here is that it would be a just and fair trade. And and many scholars speculate that when Jesus was overturning the money tables in the temple court, it was because of unjust practices, of profiteers exploiting and taking advantage of uh, pious pilgrims coming to worship in the house of God. It's interesting how you look back on God's people in this era, how they would gather for regular feasting and celebrating and worship. And you look back upon American history you consider it the, the practice in the, 19th, in the 19th century of itinerant preachers moving out and about among the frontier lands of regularly gathering people to camp meetings for a week or two weeks to gather for preaching and prayer and fellowship. And it became a time of socializing. They would plan it around the harvest season, around the, the planting season, in order to give people on the frontier time to rest. To socialize to gather and worship and fellowship uh, with god 's people, and uh, so you find, you find that there 's a resonance here uh, of the need for people to gather for, for intensive times of teaching of worship of fellowship, and you can just imagine in the in the old testament Israel the the children looking forward to the camp out it was like a time to get away a break from their school studies to enjoy. Uh, fellowship, to make friends, to play, uh, and to receive instruction um, uh, from the Levitical priesthood. You know, this here is a reminder to us that, that we need rest. We need refreshment. And then that rest and refreshment is tied up with worship and celebration. And it's a reminder to me that it's okay to spend and splurge a little bit. Israel was commanded to lay up a tithe to prepare for, to plan for this time of worship and celebration. And uh, this was, you know, a special occasion for worship and teaching and fellowship. And just consider what we do in the modern era. You know, we gather for corporate worship on uh, every Sunday, but many of us will take retreats, go to conferences, uh, take out a week or two to do a short-term mission trip. Even next week, Vacation Bible School is a time of intensive instruction and worship, both to disciple our covenant children and to evangelize children from the community. So, even what we're doing this week has a similar following the paradigm that God established with his Old Testament people. Consider how you can also apply this to other types of celebration that are not necessarily a, a, a special event of worship, but. Consider birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, baptisms, and weddings. Each of these events are causes for celebration, in which as believers we have cause to glorify God, to build people up, to emphasize our value on relationships, and, and show people what Christian, fe- what Christian fellowship is and can l- look like. But of course, with celebration comes some dangers, Right? We need to be careful that when we're planning to celebrate that, one, we're not only thinking about money, that we become miserly with our possessions. Another danger is spending beyond our means, the way some people go into debt for perhaps a wedding or another celebratory event. Perhaps another danger is showing off, showing off one's wealth uh, for the praise of man versus Celebrating with humble gratitude, with a God-centered focus on whatever the cause, whatever the gathering of celebration is, to welcome family and friends and give glory to God alone. Well, the second tithe that Moses mentions is for the support of the clergy. The Levites performed the priestly duties for Old Testament Israel. They were the ones who led God's people in corporate worship, provided the instruction in the law, And you remember, they were not given a land portion in Israel. They were scattered throughout Israel for the sake of instruction. And then they would have regular duties uh, at the house of God uh, to maintain the tabernacle and later on to maintain and serve in the temple. You'll remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who had his special once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve and give incense at, uh, at the temple. Uh, so, so, a little window into the life of a Levitical priest. God commanded in Numbers 18, he says, To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do in the tent of meeting. Well, we believe in the Protestant church that the Old Testament priests were the predecessors for pastors and ministers today, that we both serve. a a corporate role of leading God's people in worship, of interpreting the word of God, and and to pastor God's people. And so the support of the Levitical priesthood anticipates the support of the the ministers and uh, the work of pastoring in the New Testament church. But then notice there's also a third tithe. And it's a tithe that was gathered every three years from the collection that went into the towns, and it was, it was released for the care of the poor, the widows, the orphans, the strangers, and uh, it was intended to enable them to participate in corporate worship, to go on pilgrimage and to join uh, those who've been blessed with prosperity uh, to, to not fall into poverty. So consider that, three ties, uh, the, the 10% for worship celebration, through the three annual feasts, the 10% for the support of the priesthood, and a 10% every three years, which is like 3.33% annualized, if you do the math. So God's people were being called to, to, to give, to save up, something about maybe 23% being asked to live on 76% of their regular yield in gross. Well, that may seem like a lot, but compared to some tax rates around the world, it's actually a pretty good deal. But consider how God is, is guiding his people towards stewardship, how to live within their means, how to be generous, how to be worshipful and God-centered, even as it applies to money and possessions. And the question we have here is, how does this apply to us today? We, most of us are not agrarian. Uh, very few farmers or ranchers in our congregation. We no longer make animal sacrifices in our worship, thankfully. Uh, we don't have blood here in our uh, sanctuary. Um, so how do, how do we approach this? Well, once again, we begin by recognizing that everything that is mine is God's. I think, and then a couple of questions help us. Why do we work? What, what is it that we work for? Why, why do we save? What are we saving for? And why do we give? What are we giving for? Is it just for money's sake? Is it just for the sake of security? Is it just to improve one's social status or standing? Now, we believe, and even the text implies, God blesses hard work. That, that when we work, it's an opportunity to serve. To serve our employer, perhaps to serve our employees if we own a business. It's an opportunity to serve the community, to love our neighbors. And so as, as we apply the principles of the tithe, that's fundamentally to support the work of ministry, to lead worship, instruction in the word. And it's also intended to care, to make sure that everybody in the community has an opportunity to worship, to gather and to be with God's people, to to reap the benefit that uh, we have all received from God. And a reminder that you and I are not owners of our possessions. We are mere stewards. We recall the parable of Jesus, where the master, the owner, goes away on a long journey, and he entrusts his servants with certain wealth to invest in, and uh, with certain resources, and he's expecting a yield upon his return. We are like those stewards waiting for the return of the master to show him what we have done with that which we have been entrusted with. The prophet Malachi, uh, during a particularly difficult season in Israel's history, where people were cheating on their tithe to uh, the priesthood, uh, where people were bringing blemished sacrifices uh, to the altar, Uh, the Lord says to the prophet, Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open windows of heaven for you and pour down blessing for you until there is no more need, God says, test me. If you doubt my provision for you, if you are begrudging in your obligation, your calling to give to support the work of ministry, the Lord says, test me. I, for one, believe that the Old Testament tithe still stands today. We never find it repudiated in the New Testament. Uh, That we find that there's a principle here of giving, and uh, Paul continues to affirm proportional giving as he as he teaches the the church at Corinth. And and fundamentally, giving is a matter of faith. It's ultimately a heart issue. It's not a legalistic standard. It's not a talisman. You're not buying God off. Uh, you're, You're not guaranteeing securing God's blessings on your life by the way you give. But it's a matter of faith and trusting the Lord. I remember one of the hardest seasons of life for me to trust God with my tithe was in seminary. Being a full-time student and only having a meager income. And so my tithe wasn't much. But boy, that little bit was hard to give week in, week out. But the Lord was faithful. And it, and it was a blessing to me and my wife as we learned how to trust God, even with our little bit, as we were looking forward to more abundant provision uh, with full-time employment. I believe the tithe helps us focus in worship. That when we come and give, it's a sacrifice, and it, sh- it should be sacrificial. It should be something that's a part of our regular habit or regular practice. Worship, you know, David uh, made the statement when he was about to purchase the land upon which he would build uh, the temple. He says he will not make offerings that will cost me nothing when the land was offered to him for free. I believe the tithe also helps us guard against materialism. Uh, We live in a desperately materialistic age. We we are constantly bombarded with appeals to buy and to spend and invest and do all these things with our, our possessions and our wealth and our earnings. But when we give our first fruits to God, it helps us put everything else in perspective. It helps bring order and sanity to the use of our time and our income for the glory of God. And we just need this simple reminder that all we have is God's, not just the 10%. God allows us to live on the remaining 90%. I can remember as a child uh, purchasing Christmas gifts from my parents. We had this little Santa secret shop at my elementary school. I remember buying little trinkets and things from my parents. But I was using the money they gave me. In many ways, that's what you and I are doing. When we give to the church or give to charity or give to missions, we are giving back what God has already given to us, like children entrusted with their parents' wealth. Well, keep moving into chapter 15, and we see the shift to the horizontal. On the horizontal side, how Christ's sacrifice compels us to love people. And you notice in chapter 15, God establishes a kind of social safety net for his people. Anticipating the conquest and the dividing of the land, there would be an allotment of the land to families. And it was intended that those those land plots would stay in the families from generation to generation. But living in a fallen world, it would be inevitable that certain people would lose their land or they would have to sell their land to pay off debts and there would be winners and losers in the accumulation of land within Israel and so in order to preserve Israel as a nation and to prevent per, help prevent permanent poverty from setting in it was a, uh, the the sabbatical year was uh, instituted that every 7 years the debts would be canceled and then every 50 years the year of jubilee all land would be returned to the original family to help keep land within the families and help people to fight the tendency towards poverty and also to curb people's efforts to accumulate more and more land for themselves. And I I love the implications of this passage because I believe this passage affirms to us, contrary to the doctrines of communism, the Bible affirms property ownership, that, that private property is, is God's will and design for investment, for growth, for, for development. Okay? And, uh, and so, you know, in order to develop land, you need a vested interest in developing it and improving upon it. Now, in the fallen world, the, some people are good at wealth accumulation and others are not so good. You can remember uh, the kids who were really good at monopoly, really good at accumulating more and more properties uh, at your expense. Well, the statutes instituted here were to curb that tendency of land accumulation that it only ends up in the hands of the few while the rest are left weak and vulnerable. Much of poverty in Africa today is a result of a weak rule of law, poor law enforcement, and the threat of corruption where uh, government or thieves will come in and steal land. And so people have very little incentive to develop their land because they have no assurance that they'll be able to keep it. So how does this sabbatical principle apply today? Well, wouldn't it be nice if, uh, you know, our mortgage company just forgave our mortgage after seven years? Or the government would just forgive our student loans after seven years? But, but that, that's not the intent here. Uh, there's a different, these are loans for people who are in hard times. Uh, these are loans for people who barely can eke out an existence uh, versus those who take out a loan for investment in land or in their education. You know, many people today in other parts of the world have to sell their own children into slavery to pay off debts. Uh, They're exploited uh, by property owners, exploited by people who prey upon those who have medical conditions, bills, and expenses that they can only pay uh, by selling their own family into slavery. Well, Well, here is God's social justice to protect his own people, from being sold into slavery. And you and I have opportunities today to invest in ministries like Hope International, like Compassion International, that do child sponsorship or help protect people uh, from being exploited uh, in their vulnerability. So another question to ask as we try to apply this is, you know, who are the poor? It's interesting to me that in verse 4, Moses first cast this great vision that there, there will be no poor among you. Of course, verse 5, if you strictly obey the Lord. But, of course, you, pass, you go down to verse 11 uh, where uh, Moses says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. And uh, Jesus may have been referring to this passage uh, when he told his disciples, the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. Of course, God would bless his people, verse 5, if they obey his law. But of course, we know the history of Israel, that they were given to sin, idolatry, and justice, and became impoverished as a nation, conquered and sent into exile. But in verse 6 and 7, you know, there, there's this vision that God is offering his people that they would enjoy the blessings of financial strength and self-government if they would trust him and obey him, that they would be lenders and not borrowers, that they would continue to maintain self-rule. What what a glorious vision that is. Can you imagine only being a lender only and not a borrower, having their freedoms of self-rule, things that our nation has known, but things are a little shakier now. And we as God's people need to be reminded this is what God intends for his people, to enjoy financial strength, to enjoy the freedom of self-rule and not give way to tyranny and to oppression. Well, Poverty is the result of sin. That the all poverty in the world is a consequence, a result of sin. Not necessarily that individual sin, but we have poverty in the world because the world is fallen. And just consider a couple of causes of poverty in this world one is oppression and tyranny, where the wicked, the powerful, and the evildoer will oppress and exploit the weak and the vulnerable. A second cause of poverty is natural disasters that that catch people off guard by surprise that destroy their resources. And oftentimes natural disasters are amplified by neglect, Uh, like when the government of New Orleans failed to prepare prepare its people for Hurricane Katrina. That much misery in this world is a result of poor planning, poor execution, and poor protection against natural disaster. Consider physical and mental health problems are oftentimes a cause of poverty as people struggle uh, to maintain gainful employment uh, to meet their expenses. Family neglect and abuse is another cause of, of poverty, uh, with children' poverty rates very, very high. And of course, lastly, sometimes people's poverty is a result of their own sinful choices, addictions and destructive behaviors. So how do we help? How is it that we help the poor? How is it we step into uh, a world that has much poverty? Well, notice in verses 7 through 11, this final part of our passage, that the key message here is to, warn, is to guard against hardening our hearts. We, you and I need to guard against hardening our hearts against the weak, the poor, the vulnerable. You know, here at this church, we, we get someone who walks in off the street almost every week. And asking for help, seeking need, and we have a food pantry to meet their immediate needs. We have a policy against giving out money because of enabling uh, uh, addictive behaviors. We only we only pay for we only use money with people that we're in relationship with. That there's accountability. But I tell you, I've heard every story uh, known to man. And when when you deal with people who are in poverty, uh, one temptation is to get cynical is to get hard hearted so I appreciate the command of God here to, to first have a, a tender heart that 's not hardened towards those who are uh, down and out, and some people are genuine and some people are manipulators and it 's hard to know uh, the one from the other unless you 're in a relationship with them and can hold them accountable to god 's word first john three seventeen and eighteen says but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let well, us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So giving, supporting those in poverty, begins with our heart attitude. To guard against a begrudging attitude, a self-righteous attitude, of only giving for appearances or a pleasing man. And we would affirm a principle of Scripture that we believe in giving a hand up, not a hand out. To not enable people's behaviors that are destructive, uh, but to work on developing them as persons. We distinguish between development and relief. Relief is meeting people in crisis and emergencies, emergency situations, whereas development is helping people improve their situation, to move up and out of cycles of poverty through education, through job training, the better financial stewardship, through biblical discipleship. And we support ministries like Water Street, like Hope International that do just that. Developing people who move out of broken cycles of poverty. That's really the policy that guides our benevolence ministry here where we help our own people uh, to pay off bills and expenses so they can move on and uh, be more uh, financially self-sustaining. Consider gifts and loans to family. Uh, oftentimes you'll have maybe a family member come to you and they'll, they'll want a loan. And if they can repay that loan, fine. But if you suspect they can't pay that loan back, it's better to either not loan them or gift them. Because I guarantee you, you give someone a loan who can't repay you, it will it'll damage the relationship, if not kill it. And oftentimes it's better to give a gift. If it's a legitimate need and you believe in this person, you gift the money. And encourage them, rather than pay me back, you pay it forward. You use what God gives you uh, to be a blessing to others once you've reaped benefit of, of God's blessings. But I'd like to challenge you with this, this passage here, not only to consider how we care for the poor and the impoverished. You know, in verse 9, uh, there's a warning here against the, the unworthy thought in our heart of becoming cold and calculating towards those who are needy, of despising the poor, and there's a temptation in our culture, with, with many of whom live, live off of welfare. I think there's a warning for us in the evangelical church today not to despise the lost. To not, hold, not harden our hearts towards those who are very needy in the world. Uh, two weeks ago, I spent a, a week in London serving on a short-term mission trip with Surge, ministering largely to Hindus, Sikhs, and Muslims. They're very hard to reach with the gospel, very entrenched in their cultures, their religion, a religion of works, and it's a lot of work. And if you're not careful, your heart can become a little hardened and not uh, care about them. But I believe the gospel, the sacrifice of Christ leads us to see them as human persons made in the image of God who are in desperate need of a savior while we were serving in, uh, in London, uh, we learned that there are 4 million South Asians living in the UK. These are people who have come from former British Empire nations like Pakistan and India and uh, places in Africa and other parts of South South uh, Asia. 1.5 million South Asians live in the London area. 400,000 of them live between Heathrow Airport and the... the territory of Haro, where, where most of the church plants exist uh, under the, the Surge ministry team. And I can tell you this, by, by just spending a week in that culture, uh, m- meeting many Muslims in the Southall area, me- meeting uh, Hindus and Sikhs, it just became very vivid to me. The contrast between a salvation by grace and salvation by works. We met many, many people who who very unapologetically insist that their salvation comes by what they do, by their works, the five pillars of Islam, and uh, by going to prayers, by giving and doing good deeds for other people. Uh, I I spoke with many Muslims who uh, tried to insist to me that that Christianity and Islam are essentially the same. And, And they were affirming their belief in Jesus Christ uh, as much as we claim to believe, that, that they believe in Christ, they believe in what he did, they believe that Jesus is coming back to judge the earth, that they don't accept him as the son of God or as an atoning sacrifice for sins. They try to convince me that Allah loves his slaves as, mu- as more than 70 moms, as moms. So interacting with Muslims stuck in a religion of salvation by works, as earnest to convert me as I was as earnest to convert them spent uh, a day at a Sikh temple. I knew nothing of Sikhism before I went. Sikhism is a Hindu reform movement that began five or six hundred years ago. in London is host to the largest Sikh temple in the world outside of India. Now, the Sikhs are a peculiar people, 25 million of them from the Punjabi region of India. very pious. Uh, the men don 't cut their hair, long beards, hair up in a turban. they wear a bracelet. They're very service-oriented. Uh, their, their temples are open all the time, serving food, meals to the poor. We, we, when we walked through, we were given free chai tea and given a lesson on Sikhism. And I, I'll tell you this, there's something very appealing about Sikhism. Pro-family, you know, pro-nationalism, pro, pro-marriage, strong work ethic. Many Sikhs are wealthy uh, because they work hard, and they support the government, they support the military, and uh, it's very appealing until you get to karma. and You start getting into the explanation for death and suffering. It's all karma. That, that everything you get in this life is what you deserve. That everything that you get in this life is, is a consequence of a former life. And that your, your chief motivation is, to serve or do good in this life, is hoping to escape the almost endless cycle of reincarnations that will just continue and continue and continue, continue to return to this fallen world in a hopeless cycle of despair, going up or going down based upon your karma. And as I meditated upon that, as I talked with our friends and our team, I I realized, you know, if, if karma was true, I'd come back as a mosquito. Yeah, you know, my, my my good works just do not merit or justify enough advancement in that system, and I may be more grateful for grace than ever, more grateful for the fact that I have a Savior who procured for me all the karma I will ever need, who who is that who who has given me the gift of righteousness that I could never. Merit on my own. And I believe that's very, very important. Because what's the difference between a Christian who serves and a Hindu or a Sikh who serves? Are we serving on the basis of karma or are we serving on the basis of grace? I think for many Christians, many Christians approach the Christian life on the basis of karma as though God is out to get me. And I have to continue to prove myself and earn my way and maintain my status and just consider the difference in giving. There's the begrudging, the resentful giver who believes that the money is his, that God is an ogre who's stuck in an entitlement mentality, resentful for not getting what he believes he deserves from God. Consider the hypocritical giver who gives out of guilt, I heard of a man who would give large sums of money periodically to his church to atone for himself, for consorting with prostitutes, for yielding to sin before he met Christ and understood the gospel, that he could never atone for his sin by any amount of giving. Consider the self-righteous giver who gives to feel good about herself, to take up a superior stance towards lesser believers. But then there's the glad and the generous giver who recognizes what Christ has done, who recognizes that God is the true giver, that the God is the one who made sacrifice, that he does not call us to serve him. He has already served us. We're not striving to serve and worship a God who, who somehow, way, after millions of reincarnations might let us into heaven. We serve a God uh, who is willy-nilly whether or not he will accept our work and our sacrifices for our, atone for our sins. No, we have a God who has provided everything needed for life and godliness, who has met the full requirements of the law, who has suffered in the person of his son the punishment you and I deserve. Friends, we are not under karma. We are under grace. And so we can hear these words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 when he says, Each one must give as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all contentment in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Let grace drive you in your worship in your service in your giving and the way you celebrate and the way you respond to life's challenges and opportunities